And I kind of, the more I read about it, the more I was like, wow, I didn't realize how much we knew about aging and how much potential there is to intervene in the process and to sort of implicate and treat potentially different age associated diseases. And so that combined with my interest in science communication, which I sort of developed through blog writing, um, et cetera, during university, I then sort of joined together and created my YouTube channel where I further read the latest papers, try to break down um, the different concepts. Hey there, I'm Luca Fusarbassini. I'm a PhD student in computational biology at EPFL in Switzerland, and you're listening to a biotech futurist. The biotech futurist aims to foster deep understanding and discussion about exciting hot topics in biotech. But I want to say from the beginning that it is by no means rigorous in teaching the subject. And for the sake of outreach, sometimes we need generalizations that, of course, simplify the reality of the science behind what we're discussing. But I can say that my guests and I do our best to be clear and to go in depth. You can imagine to be out with me and my expert guest for a friendly conversation to get a general understanding and more curiosity, having fun as much as I've had recording this podcast. This podcast has no sponsors and any reference is not meant to support any commercial activity. This podcast is a solo effort, so if you wish to support me, I'd be grateful if you followed the Biotech Futurist on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform and share it with your friends. With that said, I am excited to move on to today's conversation at the Biotech Futurist. Today, I am lucky to meet Eleanor Shiki. Eleanor is a PhD student at the Cancer Research UK Cambridge Institute, where she focuses on P53 biology. Eleanor has a beautiful YouTube channel where she distills the most innovative research in aging with a creative and engaging rhythm. I really encourage you to visit her channel and I'll put the link in the description. Watching her videos, I thought she'd be a great person for a review on the state of the art of aging research. So this episode will be more of an introduction than a detailed analysis of a single recent work. Eleanor, thanks for being here virtually with me. Can you introduce us to your story and what led you to outreach and aging? Sure thing. So firstly, thank you for that really kind introduction. And yes, as you said, I'm currently a PhD student here at the University of Cambridge, where our lab studies cellular senescence, which I'm sure we might come to later, and how P53 plays a role in this process. But my introduction to aging, so to speak, probably came um, during my undergrads and masters. So when I was going to lectures and we had a whole series of discussions on different processes such as neurodegeneration, cancer, stem cells, and how that all sort of was interrelated through the different hallmarks of aging. So that was my initial introduction to the fields. And part of that involved writing essays, doing reading um, review articles, research papers. And I kind of, the more I read about it, the more I was like, wow, I didn't realize how much we knew about aging and how much potential there is to intervene in the process and to sort of implicate and treat potentially different age associated diseases. And so that combined with my interest in science communication, which I sort of developed through blog writing, um, et cetera, during university, I then sort of joined together and created my YouTube channel where I further read the latest papers, try to break down um, the different concepts and just see what there is in the, the space at the moment and what the future potential is. That's wonderful. So I think uh, we'd be happy to start with an introduction to general concepts in aging research. Eleanor, can you describe for us what chronological, biological and psychological age are and how the three of them relate to one another? Yeah, so I mean, that's a good question. So obviously, I think a lot of people are comfortable and familiar with um, chronological age, which is just the the time of um, the time that's passed since you were born. So um, that's pretty easy for people to work out. But in terms of understanding the aging process, and so I should say that there is still no consensus over some sort of definition of what aging is. But what has um, become apparent is that if we want to be able to understand how to intervene in aging, we sort of need some metric to understand um, how these different interventions might be actually affecting someone's age. And so I probably haven't explained that too well, but essentially if you want to do like clinical trials for these different interventions, we can't just wait for um, people to die. And, and also there's no like, easy comparison you need like uh, there's so many different confounding variables 
that we need some sort of biomarker of aging instead. And so that is where this idea of biological age was introduced instead, whereby you might um, have the same chronological age as someone, but you might be biologically younger or older. And that could be, um, if you were older biologically, it might suggest that you're at an increased risk for different diseases or your um, your risk of mortality is higher. And so depending on the different like clocks or different measurements that are used to define what biological age is, the risk factors might vary. And there's still a lot of like um, uh, controversy is not quite the right word, but there's lots of different ways in which you can do these measurements. And so um, what exactly biological age is telling us is a bit uncertain at the moment. But the idea is that it's a better proxy for your disease risk and a better measurement of your health than just judging um, judging your health on your chronological age. Um, so being very arbitrary and saying everyone over 65 should do this or not do this. Instead, you could use someone's biological age and make a better um, prediction or a better suggestion of what someone might be should do to improve their health. Um, and then you also mentioned psychological aging. It's been a while since I really read that, but the idea is that there's some evidence that if you think that you're younger than you are, you're more likely to also be healthier. And so I think, again, that's really interesting research. I don't know too much about it, but it's something that I think uh, as we get better tools to understand the brain and how um, what we think and our sort of the things that kind of come along as like sheet science at the moment, as we get better ways of being able to understand what it means. We might be able to infer some biology from it, but yeah, that is about as much as my understanding at the moment. So yeah. Uh huh. Thank you. That's really interesting. And something that I learned uh, from one of your videos is that there are oscillations in biological age. What does that mean? Yeah. So um, oscillations. Uh, so there's many different ways in which you could define what an oscillation is. So um, what? Well, there's one definition of oscillation. I mean, there's different time frames in which the oscillations could occur. So um, that also somewhat depends on the different methods in which you might uh, measure someone's biological age. So the current um, main way that people refer to when they talk about biological age are so-called epigenetic aging clocks. And so these refer to DNA methylation marks that are present or absent on different locations in the genome. And you can use the presence or absence in a range of different locations and uh, use like linear regression to then approximate what someone's biological age is. But then you could also use different uh, pro proteins uh, present in the blood as a different biomarker. You can use things like facial uh, skin um, images of the face. And I'm not entirely sure how those clocks work, but you can also use that to infer someone's age. And so some of these things like um, the proteins present in your blood may be more variable on a sort of day-to-day -day basis. Um, as compared to your face, which might be a more uh, slower change. Honestly, I don't know. This is me being a bit, um, uh, yeah, uh, suggestive. And so one thing that does change every day, or at least in the 24-hour time frame, is our circadian rhythm. And so there are certain physiological processes that happen on around a 24-hour timescale, and that's all sort of regulated through this core circadian clock. And so depending on whether you took one of these aging measurements in the morning versus the evening, you might actually see some slight variation. And then, so that's like a 24-hour timescale. Then you could also think about a monthly timescale, maybe one month, I'm feeling a bit ill, I've got the flu. That could um, definitely change some of these biomarkers as opposed to a month later where I'm feeling much more healthier um, or I've had more sleep. And so I think individually there'll be a lot of variation, but I guess... If you look at the grander picture and you were more consistent and did it like every month, you might see, you know, there's going to be some noise, but you might be able to see a sort of trajectory, which is what they've been able to <clears throat> at least somewhat infer from these population studies where they've initially derived these different uh, biological aging clocks. Nice. Uh, guys, I think that uh, we had bad luck not to record the video because she was really showing with her hands how these biological oscillations happen. So <laughs> we had bad luck. Anyway, um, I also want to ask, what does it mean that aging is asynchronous? Hmm. So, yeah, so again, going back to what actually is aging, in terms of like um, my definition, which for certain is not like the general consensus, like I don't think there is any agreed um, definition of what aging is. But to me, at least, I see aging as being loss of homeostasis. So the way in which I mean by that is that obviously our different organs and our bodies are all in communication with each other. 
And so if we have some sort of insult, if we have some sort of viral infection, our body can deal with that and knows how to respond such that it then goes back to the original set point. You know, if we get too cold, our body has uh, physiological responses to warm us back up again and vice versa. And so the way I see aging is that we sort of lose this um, ability to regulate the body. So there seems to be dysfunction in different tissues over time. And so when you say things like, is aging asynchronous, at least my understanding of that question is that our different organs might age at different rates, uh, depending on different people. So there are certain factors that might cause one organ to age more um, than someone else. So smoking, you're more likely to see potentially a higher biological age in your lung compared to a non-smoker. Um, and that's just like, and like, so with skin, if someone was um had a lot of UV um, exposure, you might expect them to have a higher biological age from in their skin than someone who didn't and um, who wore a lot of sun cream. So I think that's kind of my understanding. And the interesting questions are, is there maybe some sort of temporal order that if, you know, if your um, liver started aging, um, would that communicate with other organs and cause them to aging? And so obviously our body communicates through the bloodstream as one mechanism. And so if there was like inflammatory factors being secreted from one organ, could that induce damage elsewhere in the body or sort of cause um, different effects? And so one way that could be is through like the presence of senescent cells, for example. Um, but this is kind of like emerging research. Um, I have heard that there is someone developing a body organ biological clock. So going back to these clocks we just been mentioning, the idea is I think they were looking at different organs within um like a mouse model or something. And so that might give us an actual understanding of how asynchronous aging is. And and then also, how does it differ for different people? Is it is that how much of a genetic component is there to aging? Um, are some people more inclined to age um, in different tissues more than others? And besides it just being an interesting thing to look at, it's also interesting for thinking about interventions. Um, if there are, you know, because we can't define what aging is and there seems to be different causes of aging, uh, the, the treatments for different um, factors will therefore, like logically, it feels like it would differ as well. So the more we can understand about this question and how heterogeneous it is, the better we can then um, know how to treat and intervene. Yeah, that makes absolutely sense. So my next question becomes, when does aging begin? I mean, we have defined that aging is not a single thing, but it's many, many different things happening at once and in parallel with maybe different timescales. But at the same time, can one define when aging begins and what is the concept of ground zero of aging and potentially can we reduce and how this ground zero of aging, at least in theory? Yeah, so I mean, that's also a really interesting question. And Again, it's a little bit controversial, like different people have different ideas about when aging begins. And so like some people might say, okay, sh as soon as you turn 25, that's like a rough um, uh, estimate. As soon as you enter adulthood, that's when you start to sort of begin to age. And whereas the earlier period of time is like development and that we shouldn't sort of confuse development with aging. But then to go to your second part of the question about the ground zero uh, stage, that refers to an initial hypothesis from Professor Fadim Gladyshev, who's at Harvard Medical School, who then actually has now published a paper showing some evidence um, for when this ground zero potentially could be. <clears throat> so what is this ground zero? So this is um, the idea that there's, at some point in our lives, a, the lowest minimum point our age could possibly be. Um, so we're talking about biological age and how um, that is like a proxy for chronological age. And so obviously we start at age zero chronologically and however age we reach before we die varies. But the idea is that's a sort of one time scale, but a second time scale is our biolog biological age. And so that doesn't necessarily have to begin at zero. And so we all start life um, as a gamete. We have an egg and sperm that come together um, and form the, the embryo. And so obviously they've derived from our parents. And one could speculate that the age of the sperm and the egg at the time of fertilization wouldn't be young. There has to be some sort of early rejuvenation event that enables the new embryo to begin from a biological age of zero. Um, so there is this like natural rejuvenation process that seems to happen each generation. 
I say what this more recent paper shows was by using one of these uh, measurements of biological age, so DNA methylation, they could see in mice um, take samples from the very early stages of development and they actually saw a decline in the biological age, um, which is really interesting, um, suggesting that there does seem to be this very early rejuvenation events at, at the very early stages of um, embryogenesis. And so it's not entirely sure exactly how that would translate to humans, but at some point in very early development, we seem to have reached this biological age of zero, or whatever zero really means in this context. And from um, from then onwards, any sort of damage that could um, be accumulated over, over time or whatever these different causes of aging actually are, we then see an increase in the biological age. So you could argue that, therefore, we begin aging um, after embryogenesis at that very early stage, but that also feels like a very mm, kind of wrong thing to say because obviously, as we've discussed, we're also going through development. And so, you know, if we talk about anti-aging or reversing aging, we don't want to go back to that state. We want to sort of stay in the adulthood. So it's a little bit of semantics, I think, personally, but that is generally the kind of one biological estimate of when aging does begin. Um, again, we could criticise um, how much these different biological clocks reflect the aging process. Maybe DNA methylation is not the best thing to, to be using at early stages. Who knows? I think it's all kind of exciting but emerging research at the moment. So yeah, hopefully that answers your question. Sure. Thank you for sharing with us. Um, so now I think we can shift to the cellular and physiological contents of aging. I know you're a big fan of senescence, so my first question about cellular things in aging will be, what is senescence? How does it play a role in aging? What, are, what is SASP and possible strategies to address this therapeutically, such as senolytic CAR T cells? And also, if you can describe briefly for us, uh, what is the concept of vaccines for aging? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so senescence is, um, I guess, what my entire lab studies at the moment. And so many people think of senescent cells, or they hear them be described as like zombie cells, which I always think that's a really bad sort of description of what a senescent cell is. So there are kind of two or well, two to three sort of main features of senescent cells. Uh, the first feature is that they enter a cell cycle arrest. So the cells literally stop proliferating. Um, and they're not dead, which is what I guess sort of zombie sort of maybe that's where the idea came from. But these cells are actually very metabolically active and they're secreting a variety of different things into their environment, um, which is referred to as the senescence associated secretory phenotype or the SASP, the SASP that we like to call it. Um, and it's surviving. So the cell's very much not dead, it's just existing, it's just there. Um, and so we think the secretory phenotype um, is important. And the reason we think it's important is because it comes back to where did these senescent cells come from in the first place and what, why are they existing? And so there's many ways you can make a cell become senescent. And all of them sort of revolve around some sort of cell stress. And so there could be DNA damage, oxidative damage, it could be a mutation in an oncogene um, that causes the cell to over-replicate. And eventually, effectively, all of these different mechanisms induce some sort of DNA damage response um, that activates um, the cell to enter a cell cycle of rest, some of which that could be mediated through one protein called P53. And so the cell stops proliferating initially to try and repair the damage to deal with the problem. But if that damage persists, then the cell somehow, which is, again, we're not entirely sure how this decision process is made, but it enters into cellular senescence, where it then uh, develops this secretory profile. And so coming back to the secretory profile, a lot of these different components include things like cytokines and inflammatory factors. And these are all sort of secreted into the surrounding environment. And the current, well, well so there's a couple of different functionalities of this response. So in terms of the cytokines, they could bring in different immune cells to the area. And so in the case of some sort of DNA damage insult, it could be important for a sort of wound response. So um, if there's some damage to the body, you accumulate senescent cells, they secrete things into the environment, that brings in some immune cells to then get rid of the damaged cells and get rid of them. 
and other things that they secrete are growth factors. And so if you've got damage and you're going to get rid of those cells, you then need other cells to sort of replicate and replace the damaged cells. So all of these things that the senescent cells do, they seem to be ben beneficial. It's um, a physiological response. It's helping with wound, uh, wound healing. And in fact, studies have shown that if you add senolytics, so drugs that uh, remove senescent cells during wound healing, you actually sort of slow down the process. So senescent cells are good in that context. But in the context of aging, what seems to happen is that if these senescent cells aren't cleared and they sort of just persist, that's one of their, their third attributes is their cell survival. They're just existing. And if they're just existing, they keep on chronically secreting all these seven factors. And we think that sort of drives us in implementing. It sort of causes damage elsewhere. Um, and it's just being a bit of a pest, really. It's just not doing anything it's just um not functioning as the cell should be it's just taking up space doing naughty things um and so that's why we think senescent cells could be uh also contributing to aging so it's got, got good uh good sides and bad sides um and so you've mentioned a couple of different senolytic strategies for me to talk about so so describe firstly what is sort of meant by a senolytic strategy um Effectively, it's a strategy that selectively kills senescent cells without affecting healthy cells. And so um, one way I sort of mentioned already is that you can use different small molecules that have been shown um, in vitro and to some extent in, in vivo and so in mouse models that they do clear senescent cells. Um, but there's a whole range of different strategies that are now being investigated to see if we can understand the biology of a senescent cell and target its vulnerabilities to also clear them. And so you mentioned senolytic CAR T cells. Um, I mean, I can speak about five minutes on CAR T cells to really explain how they work, but effectively they're sort of modified T cells, so T cells being part of the adaptive immune response. And so you modify these T cells so that they recognize receptors um, on the membrane of senescent cells. So the idea is they bind to senescent cells and recognize them as opposed to the healthy neighboring cells that don't express this membrane protein receptor. And so if you can do that with the, the T cells, the T cells can be T, T cells, so they can actually then kill the, the senescent cells or bring in other macrophages or other immune cells that can do that instead. Um, I'm not an immunologist, so <laughs> I'm sorry if I got that a little bit wrong. Um, and then the more recent strategy is kind of similar, but a bit different, is to um, also use these antibody drug conjugates. So again, exploiting the fact that senescent cells may have a different membrane protein profile compared to healthy cells. So antibodies um, recognize antigens. And so if you have an antibody that recognizes these membrane proteins that are present on senescent cells, but not uh, healthy cells, you can then fuse to that antibody a sort of cytotoxic drug. And so if you deliver that into the tissue, you get the antibody recognised as an essence cell with the cytotoxic drug. It gets sort of um, sort of endocytosed, so it enters into the cell, and then that payload is then delivered to then kill the senescent cell. Um, I think, was that all of the things you asked me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's really nice. Thank you. Um, now I'm opening a kind of a very big topic uh, where we should spend like 10 hours, but uh, we will only spend like 5 to 10 minutes, which is protein aggregation in aging uh, and also the compelling but still very recent and exploratory theory of contagion of aging happening between cells, how it can happen locally and more globally, and uh, the highly discussed relationship between aging and neurodegenerative diseases. Sure, yeah, and no, you're definitely right, protein aggregation, um, yeah, definitely is a big topic. So, um, yeah, if we come back to, like, the different hallmarks of aging, so um, the hallmarks of aging is kind of a good introduction to understanding the aging, uh, the aging field. Um, there is some criticism over how good it is as being a paradigm for understanding the aging process. But in terms of just an introduction as to what different areas people are studying, it is a good way of thinking about it. And um, one of them includes uh, protein um, dysfunction. So sort of 
coming back to the sort of homeostasis, it includes things like protein misfolding, protein aggregation, and uh, an increase in the sort of like errors that occur during translation. So that's when you go from like mRNA to the protein. And so um, obviously proteins are kind of like, as much as, you know, we love DNA, we love RNA and everything else that goes on in the cell, it's the proteins that possess all of the enzymatic activity that sort of do most of the chemical reactions that occur within the cell and within the body. And so um, having misfolded proteins means they're not in the correct conformation for them to perform the function that they should. Likewise with aggregate, aggregates, if the protein misfolds, um, it might expose um, like hydrophobic surfaces that within a cell shouldn't, like uh, it doesn't, um, yeah, causes it to sort of prefer to bind to other proteins as opposed to um, staying soluble and sort of causes these massive aggregates. Um, and that's commonly seen in like some proteins are more prone to this than others. And one protein that's particularly prone to this is amyloid beta. And so um, one of the proteins that's particularly prone to aggregation is amyloid beta. And so amyloid beta, um, like aggregates of amyloid beta are commonly seen in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease. And so you can see them inside um, <clears throat> the cells of patients with Alzheimer's disease. And um, another protein that also aggregates is a protein called tau. And um, the combination of these two uh, protein aggregates have been attributed to the progression of Alzheimer's disease. But the interesting question um, is, are they causal to the process or are they just a reflection of the aging process that happens in the brain? And it's um, still somewhat controversial. There's New evidence comes out all the time that either disproves or proves the hypothesis. Um, and so I can't really say too much more on that because um, as much as it was uh, something I was following a lot, I'm definitely not up with the latest research in terms of understanding um, neurodegenerative diseases. But yeah, to come back in general about understanding what are the causes of aging, definitely anything that results in these dysfunctional aggregates from occurring is effectively taking your functional proteins away from doing what they should be doing. And so again, coming back to what I currently think aging is, is some sort of loss of homeostasis, a loss of dysfunction. It kind of makes sense that if you've got these aggregates, then you basically disrupted the homeostatic mechanism within a cell. And so therefore, there are some approaches, um, at least with Alzheimer's that I know of, that are trying to develop small molecules or peptides that can sort of disrupt these aggregates or to boost the levels of um, proteins that fold uh, proteins correctly. So ironically, there are proteins that are involved in causing proteins to fold correctly. And so if there's ways that we can boost um, the proteostasis, so the regulation of protein folding, protein aggregates within a cell, that could be one potential anti-aging strategy. But um, unfortunately, I still feel like it is somewhat um, un under-explored. Um, hopefully we'll improve upon that but yeah sure so my next big topic to open uh, is quite a big classic which is telomere shortening in aging so what is telomerase how does telomere shortening happen and what are the restoration strategies being proposed these days such as small molecules genetic interventions or turk stabilization and what are the risks of such interventions Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, for those who don't know, so telomeres are effectively uh, long sequences that are found at the ends of our DNA. So our DNA is linear, so it has ends, and it's sort of organised into different chromosomes, so you might be familiar with the sort of X shapes of different chromosomes, but they're linear, so they have ends. And so um, that they have at the ends of them different telomeres. And so what are the function of these telomeres? Well, one function is to sort of act as sort of like shoe caps on shoelaces, the sort of protective ends um, to stop the DNA from unraveling. However, every time a cell replicates during DNA replication, the DNA replication isn't 100%. There's something known as the, the end replication problem. That means that on the ends of DNA, there's a gradual shortening um, of the base pairs each time the DNA is replicated. And so being, having the telomeres at the end means that the telomeres are getting shorter every time the cell replicates. 
And so there's an enzyme called telomerase that is expressed in some cells, mainly stem cells, that can add extra repeats of these telomeres to the ends. And so that prevents the decline. But in many cells, telomerase isn't um, expressed or is expressed at very low levels such that these uh, telomeres are just shortening over time as the cell replicates. And so coming back to senescence, uh, Leonard Hayflick first um, proposed the term senescence after growing some cells in a culture dish. And he noticed that after around 40 to 50 uh, replications, the cells stopped dividing, they'd enter senescence. And now there is known, it's referred to as replicative senescence, that um, after the telomeres have shortened so many times, you've exposed the DNA ends, and that's another sort of cell stress that um, is kind of dangerous for the cell to replicate when it's come to this position, because now that the DNA is vulnerable, it could get mutated, um, or like aberrantly fuse ends to different parts of chromosomes and just basically cause mayhem within the cell. So the cell doesn't replicate and it enters senescence. And so therefore one might speculate that if the cell stops dividing after around 40 to 50 divisions, what if we could boost the activity of telomerase? What if we could add telomerase back to these cells? Would they continue to replicate longer than we usually expect? And so, of course, if you add telomerase to cells in a, a culture dish, they do, of course, replicate longer before they enter uh, replicative senescence. The interesting question then is, can we apply this um, in vivo, so to different model organisms? And they've done that in mice. And I mean, it's, it's been done many different times in sort of slightly different ways, where you can just basically introduce extra gene copies of the telomerase um, protein into the, the mice. And sometimes, so, in some cases, you see increased cancer risk. And so um, if you think again about what telomerase is doing, it's increasing the lengths of these telomeres, which en enables the cell to replicate more times. And so for a cancer cell, giving, this, um, giving the cell telomerase means that they can just continue to replicate without having to worry about these um, mis, um, aberrant chromosome connections that could occur. On the flip side, if you combine things like telomerase with um, other proteins such as P53, um, which is a, um, a tumor suppressor, so <laughs> uh, of course, um, which um, is a tumor suppressor and responds to different cell stressors, then actually in combination, it might uh, be effective that you increase telomerase, which is, uh, enables the cells to replicate more, but you're also increasing these sort of anti-cancer genes. And so there might be like a, a way that we can combine different gene um, genetic approaches together to actually improve the health span and or lifespan of these different model organisms. So again, how would you apply that to humans? Um, that I know that there is some people who've actually injected um, themselves with telomerase gene. Um, I'm not entirely sure how they did it. I don't know if this is also public knowledge. Um, I think it is. Um, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, so obviously people are working on different gene therapies, ways to deliver genes into the body. In fact, if you think about the different mRNA vaccines we have for COVID, that's just one mechanism in which you can get information into a cell. In that case, it was an RNA copy, which in many ways could be something that you might want, because obviously with RNA, it's um, a sort of temporary expression of a gene. So maybe if we can work out a safe strategy, it might be to deliver telomerase to different tissues as an RNA vaccine. So you have a short-term exposure to the telomerase uh, gene activity. You might be able to extend the telomeres. Obviously, the mRNA gets degraded, the protein essentially gets degraded. But maybe you've increased the number of times that cell could replicate. And maybe that could be beneficial for certain tissues that are going through a lot of replications, like skin or intestine. Um I haven't actually really looked in to see if anyone's actually doing that. It <laughs> sounds like a good idea in my head now I've said it. Um, and then there are potentially small molecules that could also bind to telomerase and increase its activity. Um, I forget entirely which ones they are. There's also um, some ways in which you could increase the stability at the mRNA level um, to increase the expression of telomerase. So definitely I think there's potential. I think it's critical that we work out a way that's going to be safe. So maybe that is either having a short exposure to telomerase activity or by combining it with different um, anti-cancer tumor suppressor genes. Wonderful. So what about instead the genetics of aging? 
and uh, also another very introductory topic I'd be happy to briefly explore with you is what about gut microbiome and aging? Two questions in one. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so talk about the first one. So uh, there is one theory known as like the somatic mutation theory of aging that as we age, we all get exposed to different UV radiation from different uh, toxins, either through foods or through smoke, etc. Uh, that basically causes damage to the body and you know our cells get dna dna breaks every single day but our cells are good at responding to the the damage and repairing it but obviously there's always going to be some breaks that sort of slip through and over time um it's thought that we could accumulate these mutations if the mutations are in important genes the genes then get mutated they lose their function again kind of Similar, similar to all these other theories of like the protein aggregates, it's like some sort of loss of function occurs within the cell. And if it's in one cell, it happens in multiple cells, you lose the function in the organ, you then lose systemic um, bodily function. And so there's been like, with all the amazing advances in DNA sequencing, you can now actually look at different tissues and see the sort of the rate of mutations um, if you take tissues from uh, model organisms at different time points. And so there was a kind of uh, landmark paper that came out in Nature earlier this year that basically did this. Um, I, th I think it was in the intestine and they did it in uh, different model organisms um, where they had tissue samples from different stages of their lifespan. And what they found was that the somatic mutation rates inversely correlated with lifespan. Effectively, um, the higher the the accumulation of these somatic mutations, the shorter the lifespan. And so that was actually quite strong evidence for this DNA mutation theory of aging. Um, obviously, it was just in one tissue. It was um, only a limited number of samples, but it does actually uh, provide some rationale that DNA mutations could be one of these causal factors for aging. Um, so I think that's, we'll have to wait to hear more information on that story, but it's also one that I like to, uh, um, I, I like to think about because my research focuses on P53, as you already mentioned, and mutations that happen in this protein. And also, I believe that it causes some sort of dysfunction to the cell. So kind of in line with, with something I think about a lot. Um, but something I also think about a lot, but I don't directly work on, um, is the microbiome. So you mentioned the gut microbiome, which is... Um, well, in our cuts, but we also have microbiomes in our skin and also our oral cavity. And so effectively, you know, we think our bodies are made of human cells, but actually um, there's a whole host of different microbes that are also residing within and on us. So that could be bacteria, viruses, fungi. Um, and, you know, they, they you might think, oh, that's really bad, but they're really important um, for how our bodies function. So um, they're important for digesting our foods. There's a lot of food like fiber and stuff that our bodies just don't know what to do with. But these different bacteria can break it down and produce like short chain fatty acids that are um, important for different things within the cell. I can't quite remember. Um, but the bacteria themselves are also obviously also uh, generating uh, different factors that they can secrete into the environment. And so it's now known that the bacteria are important for um, our immune response. Um, and potentially also communicating with our brain. And so there's this whole gut-brain uh, immune axis, that the gut axis that's being explored. Um, and so there's a lot of really interesting research being done. Um, the microbiome composition has also been shown to change with age. So going back to these aging clocks I mentioned at the start, they've done bits with DNA methylation, with different protein changes, but they've also did try to create one by looking at how the gut microbiome changes with age, which is really quite interesting. Um, and yeah, I think it'd be really interesting to find ways either to um, tweak the composition or to at least understand the, the sort of biochemical molecules that these bacteria are generating and understand which ones are beneficial um, and seem to be contributing to our health. I think there's a lot of things we don't understand about our gut microbiome at the moment. And actually, there was a recent paper that came out in Nature Aging last week that also showed that our... Um, I think it was the skin microbiome was also something that was super interesting. Um, and because obviously our skin's exposed to all of the things around us. And it was, I really, I only read it like the other day. Um, but it was um, basically showing, if you looked at the composition of the skin microbiome, 
you could see even more distinct changes with age than maybe just looking at the gut microbiome. And obviously the skin's more accessible, so that could be another good biomarker for looking at biological age. Um, yeah, so it's something I'm always looking into, super interesting stuff. Um, but yeah, we, we're not just made of human cells, we also have to take care of our microbiome as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to all of your videos in the next few years dealing with <laughs> microbiome at different levels. I mean, there's so much to talk about, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe the next episode on this podcast with Eleanor will be about entirely about the gut microbiome in aging. That would be nice. Anyway, uh, I think we are short of time, so maybe we should jump to animal models and the central nervous system briefly. So one interesting case that you brought in your videos is the cloning of Dolly. Most of you are probably familiar with uh, the case with Dolly, the, the sheep that got cloned as first uh, mammal to, to get cloned. And uh, she was quite a normal uh, sheep for many reasons. And uh, she had uh, children, let's say. So, Eleanor, how does the case with Dolly relate to aging? Why it matters in aging research? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the case with Dolly was like one of the sort of most remarkable um studies that you know you still learn about as you go through undergrads and essentially how they did it was they they took an egg cell and they took out the nucleus and they took um from a sheep so um they took from the memory glands i believe um one of the cells and they took out the nucleus from the cell and they put that the nucleus into the egg and so we've spoken a lot about biological age and so this uh, cell the nucleus that was taken from the memory cell was taken from a sheep i don't know what age the sheep was but it wasn't you know a biological age of zero this the sheep had aged and so the question was um well so the initial questions were trying to understand as the cells differentiate and become different cell types do the cells lose information about their original states um we now know that as cells replicate they get the full copy of the dna it's not like it, half of it is replicated and they get they only accumulate a portion of it they have all the information capable of replicating and becoming different cell types but the idea is that that cell is differentiated and is now doing a specialized function and so they wanted to know if you took a specialized cell and took out the nucleus which has the dna sequence and put it into an egg would that egg then be able to create an organism that was a fully functioning organism or did it would it just create a load of mammary uh, cells that was the question that they were trying to address like do we does the cell lose information as it becomes specialized and so what they found was that obviously you take the nucleus and put it into the egg they were actually able to form dolly which was like um although she did die i believe somewhat shorter than they expected um she was otherwise functioning um didn't have any sort of abnormalities and so that suggested that clearly the nucleus of that specialized cell had all of the information it needed to create another um, organism, but it just wasn't being expressed um, in the cell type. And so that information was being suppressed. And so this kind of also brings us into something known as cellular reprogramming. What are the triggers that causes a specialized cell to sort of differentiate and de-differentiate and go the other way and go back to a sort of stem cell that has the potential to form all of the different cell types that make up our body. I say that also would bring us into the entire field of regenerative medicine and how potentially in the future we could take specialized cells like from our skin which are easy and we also are always making more skin cells so it's easy to take take and use and we could then de-differentiate them back into a stem cell um, and then we can sort of trigger that stem cell to turn into lots of different cell types. And then you could use that to create an organ um, for your heart or use it to make neuron cells. I think this is all the different poss possibilities people are currently exploring. And so we might have a damaged organ as we age. And instead of depending on waiting for ages for a transplant, we could use our own body, body cells, create stem cells and use them to make different organs. And that's the kind of premise behind regenerative medicine approaches and so people, people are just trying to work out the safe ways or the effective ways of being able to do this in a controllable manner um so we kind of we did deviate a little bit from dolly but um no, but, i uh, think the case of dolly <laughs> yeah dolly sort of highlights what's possible and obviously we don't want to be cloning uh humans at this point but on a micro scale we could be able to effectively somewhat clone an organ of ourselves and use it um, in regenerative medicine. Um, 
as opposed to uh, yeah overweighting for transplants um and then the other benefit is that it's our own cell type so there isn't that um host uh, to graft mismatch so there's not going to be some massive immune response as our own cells still so super exciting work um i hope that yeah we continue to see more advances with it yeah wonderful so can you briefly explain to us uh, Sinclair's work and his group's work on vision restoration by cellular reprogramming that you described in your video Exactly. Yeah. So this kind of just leads on from what we just said. Said so cellular re reprogramming is about taking a sort of specialized cell and converting it back to a stem cell. Or now, actually, the hot topic is social so-called partial reprogramming. So you don't fully go back to the stem cell, but you go back enough that the cell can start to replicate. And so in Sinclair's paper, they use some reprogramming factors. Um, so these are factors that, when expressed in a cell, can trigger this de-differentiation de process um, that enables the cell to then replicate and then repair any damage. So what they did in, in mice is they sort of damaged the, the eye and then they delivered um, these reprogramming factors. And effectively, that enabled some of the cells to de-differentiate and then repl uh, replicate and replace and re um you can actually see in their paper how it replaced in the, I think it was the, uh, I forget exactly which part of the eye it was, but you could see the regrowth. And that regrowth was also associated with function and it restored the fission um, in the mice that had been uh, injured. Um, and I believe they also did it in old mice and it sort of, um, that had were losing their fission and it restored, restored the fission as well. So the way they did that was with three of the reprogramming factors, OCT4, SOX2, KLF4. And they didn't use uh, a protein called MYC, which is uh, commonly upregulated in different cancers. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's a, it was an interesting study. And I forget as well, I think they used a viral, a trans, a viral so an AAV virus that can give the, the cells the different genes. So there is potential for human translations because obviously these viruses um, the sort of safer viruses that can deliver genes into the body but again I think we just have to wait for these things to be proven that they are safe um, and then obviously there'll be a massive clinical trial um, going on I'm not entirely sure how far like yeah I'm not entirely sure if Sinclair's lab are even still studying this I guess we'll have to wait and see um, but yeah I think that's just one example obviously the eye is very accessible for things like um, delivery of these viruses the question is can we use the same technique and apply it for different tissues within the body. Um, how can we get specificity to a certain tissue? Um, but for sure, like loads of people are really actually investigating this. There's like tons of companies doing very similar things. So I'm pretty like somewhat optimistic. Um, I just, for me being the biochemist, I just love to know like how is this process happening? Like how do we go from a differentiated cell back to a stem cell? Um, what can we learn about it? So. Yeah, super cool super stuff. futuristic thank you for sharing with us i have a very quick last question for you eleanor which is what do, does the rejuvenation mean and uh, what do rejuvenation biotech companies want to achieve what are the most common strategies they try to employ to to achieve what they propose so rejuvenation strategies and possibly the role of blood factors in rejuvenation <laughs> cool yeah i know <laughs> i mean for sure that's definitely that's not a quick question um but effectively, yeah, the way I think about the aging field or the longevity field in general is that you can sort of split the intervention approaches into two cohorts. One are more like jury protective strategies that might slow down the progression of aging and others are these sort of rejuvenative approaches that kind of push back the aging process or they reverse it. <clears throat> so again, Rafael, I don't know if that's entirely the right idea. I mean, I would include a regenerative medicine in this category. So as you mentioned, with these different organs, replacing one organ with a one you generated from a different cell in uh, ex vivo and re-transplanting that, I think would come under rejuvenation. But there's also a host of different other potential ways we could rejuvenate and actually reverse um, the process. And so again, reversing in this context would therefore potentially mean a reduction in the biological age. Which again, we could then go, how do, so it's kind of like a catch 22, like how do we know these regenerative uh, methods are working by using these biological aging measurements if we can't actually validate the biological aging measurements with known rejuvenation processes? Um, but yes, yeah, so I got a bit distracted. So one way you mentioned is with um, uh, 
blood um, blood factors. So there's these classic uh, experiments done called heterochronic parabiosis, where you can fuse the circulatory system of a, yo- a young and an old mice, and you see that the old mice get rejuvenated. And so rejuvenation in this context was mainly looking at things like uh, neurogenesis, so um, the, the growth of new neurons in the brain, as well as regrowth in different tissues within the body. And so subsequent work has been done from that because obviously doing something like that is not something we want to be doing with humans neither do we want to really be harvesting young bloods and giving it to old people so it turns out that actually instead of finding young factors if you simply dilute the blood um, of old mice so you just take out the blood get rid of everything but the blood cells and put in just some saline uh, solution back into the mice that also showed similar rejuvenative effects and so for me, that's something that seems quite promising. And so with these companies, um, majority of them that I, at least I've looked into are trying to use the cellular reprogramming strategy to basically work out what is the most effective way to generate stem cells or to do this partial reprogramming to, uh, to make it safer. Because obviously one concern with full reprogramming as you go back to a stem cell that's undifferentiated and potentially could turn into lots of different types of cells. Whereas with partial differentiation, the idea is that you regain cell proliferation, but the cell somewhat remain retains its identity. Um, so if it was in the liver, for example, it, if it partially differentiated, de-differentiated, it could replicate, but it's also like, I know I'm a liver cell and it will replicate, differentiate then into a liver cell as opposed to becoming a neuron or something really strange. Um, So, yeah, I mean, obviously these companies are also somewhat secretive about what they're really up to. And so that's probably as much as I honestly do know. Um, Obviously, I know I did make a video on it and list some of the companies. And so they've probably updated their website since I last looked. Um, But yeah, I mean, again, it's just, especially with Alsace Labs is probably the, the big headliner at the moment with and millions, or no, billions, um, to create these different sensors for research um, into rejuvenation and what's causing aging, etc. Um, so, yeah, exciting times to be in the field. And so, yeah, I look forward to helping at least to either communicate the science or even maybe to contribute to the science myself. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Eleanor. Uh, we've been lucky to hear about your extended knowledge on aging research. And I think we are also lucky to have someone like you that really keeps us updated on such a topic with, I mean, science precision, but at the same time in an engaging way. So thanks for the work you do with your channel. And I'm looking forward to seeing many more of your videos and maybe interviewing you again someday. So thank you so much for the time you spent with me. And also, thank you for having me. It's always fun to communicate science. You've just listened to A Biotech Futurist, a podcast by Luca Fusarbassini. This is the first series and a new episode is out every Monday. Please consider subscribing and rating the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform. And if you liked this episode, consider sharing it with your friends, as the growth of new podcasts relies on word of mouth. If you have any suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out to me on Instagram or Gmail at thebiotechfuturistpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the full AI-generated transcript of this episode on my website, lucafuzarabassini.com. I'll also post the links to the main papers referenced in this episode, which you can find here in the description too. Thanks for listening to A Biotech Futurist. I am looking forward to talking with you in a week.